continue looking at mysticism. How many of you have ever heard of something called Kabbalism or Kabbalist? Jewish Kabbalism? No? That is really the first instances that were the practitioners within Judaism and Christianity of mysticism. And the Kabbalists, there are still practitioners today of that, believed that there were hidden mysteries in the Bible that had to be revealed through various means. And uh, um, it wasn't common. The rabbis didn't always have these hidden meanings. And so they would have, would have sought, just as the Gnostics did, to communicate with angels and other beings in order to get these hidden meanings. And that is where I entered into Christianity what... Uh, we would know today as allegorical interpretations or reading into here's what that means to me kind of ideas. And a man by the name of Oregon uh, who uh, was a, purported, purportedly a Christian, he was an Aryan, didn't believe in the deity of Christ and was probably instrumental in corrupting the scriptures more than any other man uh, in the history of Christianity, he would have had been in charge of the Alexandrian text of the Bible, which is uh, the two texts from which we get, we don't get, the eclectic text comes from the corrupted text of the Bible. And they were constantly messing around with the original Greek text, thinking they had all kinds of liberty in it. Now, this is essentially the same as modern-day mysticism. It just has variations. But when we think about mysticism, there's a lot of variations. Now, when you hear people start talking a lot about angels, uh, you're more than likely listening to somebody who's a mystic. Um, the Bible doesn't really talk a great deal about angels except to explain to us who they are and what they do. And remember, there are angels who are deceptive spirits. Those are fallen angels. Their purpose is to deceive. They just don't deceive because they're ignorant. They deceive because they know the Bible better than you and I do. And their purpose is to deceive. And then, of course, there are angels who are essentially the servants of man. And God uses them in a lot of different ways within the Bible, but they, we've heard the term guardian angels. They certainly are our protectors and our servants. But mysticism involves giving worship to anything or being other than God. And we have to be very careful about what we worship or what we give worth or value to. Now, I think there are people who worship their pastor, and I think that's a bad thing to do. Uh, now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't give value to your pastor or who he is or any other Christian or give value to your 
the, the deacons in our church, our piano player, other people who serve, teach, and various other ministries, they have value. But there is a transition when that value moves into worship, and that becomes a very dangerous thing. So there are times when God has sent angels to communicate something to people. We know that, right? We find that numerous times in the Old Testament. However, nowhere in the Bible are believers told to try to communicate with angels to get a message to God. Why would we need to do that? Now just think about that for a minute. God does not need, need angels to act as intermediaries with us in order for us to communicate with him. We can talk. We don't even have to talk. God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God knows what we think. And many times as I lay in bed at night and I'm laying there quiet, don't want to wake up my wife, I just talk with the Lord in my mind. He knows and hears. Now, every new covenant believer can come boldly under the throne of grace. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14, I think is what it's supposed to be there. Uh, to communicate with him and find grace to help in a time of need. Every one of us can. And we can talk directly to God. We are not in the old covenant anymore. We don't have to have a priest go before God. We already have one who's already seated in the heavenlies. At the right hand of God, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's our heavenly high priest. So go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 15. Okay, let me read this for you. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves. What's he talking about? He's talking about worship. Take heed unto yourself. Be careful about what, what or who you worship. For you saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the, of the fire. There was no... Uh, he spoke out of the fire, but there was no other manner of similitude, nothing that looked like Something you should worship, that you should make an idol of. Lest you corrupt yourself to make you a graven image. The similitude of any figure, the likeness of a male or a female. That's why God didn't show himself in a form. The likeness of any beast that is on the earth. The likeness of anything foul that flieth in the air. The likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground. The likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the earth. Unless thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, when thou seest the sun, the moon, and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them, which is exactly, of course, what the pagan nations did. That's why they were so um, occupied with astrology and uh, where the suns and the stars were. Of course, they got the seasons and things from it, but they... Uh, worshipped it all, thinking it was God's. Uh, I said, which the Lord thy God hath divided into all nations under the, under the whole heaven. And my wife and I have very carefully not used symbols over the years. Some people want to be, you know, let people know they're Christian, they wear a cross. 
They have a fish on the back of their car, whatever it is. I don't think that we need any of those kind of things, and I've never used them. I've always opposed them, but I've never spoken out necessarily and said, well, you know, you're in sin if you do that. I don't think those are the kind of things that God wants us to use. We don't worship God in icons. And nor should we try to represent God by an icon of any kind. A cross certainly doesn't, an iconic cross certainly doesn't represent uh, in any way, any kind of understanding of what Christ accomplished on the cross of Calvary. Nor is it what God meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me. That's certainly a pretty poor, mis a poor understanding of what Christ is saying. Go with me to Revelation 19.5. We're looking at angels here. God does communicate with angels. Communicate to us with angels. He does not need angels for us to communicate with him. It says, and a voice. What was that? An angel. Verse 5, Revelation 19. Came out of the throne. Saying, praise our God, all ye his servants and ye that fear him small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude. What's that? That's a whole bunch of angels. We don't, it tells us that it was as the sounds of as a voice of many waters. Like it was so much it was like the waves crashing on the shore. As a voice of mighty thundering saying hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigning. Let us be glad and rejoice he says and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean linen, excuse me, fine linen, <laughs> clean and white, for the fine linen, linen is the righteousness of the saints. And that, of course, is typical, of course, of uh, what the Spirit of God has done. All of these things are critically important for us. And what we are trying to understand regarding the fact that we don't communicate to God with angels. God occasionally did communicate with us by angels. But the intent is, God's not doing that now. God now is speaking to us how? Through the scriptures, right? Through the scriptures. So if you want to have a conversation with God, you can talk to him directly. You want to hear what he has to say, read the Bible. So somebody says to me, well, God spoke to me. And I say, what book were you reading when he spoke to you? Because that's the only way God spoke to you today. Verse 9, and he, what's that, that, that's an angel, saith unto me, John the Apostle, right, blessed are Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he, the angel, saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet. He fell at the feet of the angel. To what? Worship him. And he, the angel, said unto me, See thou do it not. What's another way to say that? How would we say that today? Stop that. <laughs> Don't do that. You know, quit that. A lot of different ways. God said, 
The angel recorded here said, see thou do that, do it not. Why? I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren and have the testimony of Jesus. He's, he's part of the creation. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. Only worship God. That's a concept here. Don't worship anything else other than God. Now can we worship Jesus? Sure, he's God. But we shouldn't worship angels. And then look down to chapter 22 and look at verse 8. And I saw those things, and I, John, saw those things and heard them. And when I heard, I had heard and seen, I fell down to feet to, to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Now, why is he doing this again? The angel already said, don't do this. You see, we have a tendency to become overwhelmed by spiritual beings that are so far above us. And we get confused very easily when we get in, in the company of these kinds of beings. Now, there will be a day that you and I will be living with angels in heaven. And... You know, they're, they're still going to be powerful beings. I have no idea what kind of powers we'll have in our new body, what we'll be capable of doing. But these beings are pretty awesome beings. But they shouldn't be worshipped. So he says, then saith he unto me, what? Uh, See thou do it not, or stop it. For I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brother, and of the prophets. Because, of course, they had been instruments which God had revealed things to the prophets through angels. And of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. Literally, worship God and God alone. We have to be very careful because I think we have a lot of people pursuing after angels and mysticism today. Or even pursuing after Things they don't understand, and they're asking for spiritual beings to reveal them to them. Now, we had a king in the Old Testament that had a problem with that. Who was that? Do you remember? His name was Saul. And he consulted with the witch of Endor. And she what, called back Abraham back from the dead. And Abraham got upset about it. <laughs> huh? Samuel. Yeah, we go. And uh, she, got, she got upset about it. And uh, rightfully so. Now, Satan and all fallen angels want the worship from humanity. Righteous angels do not. Righteous angels do not want worship. Let me say one more thing. Righteous people do not want it for worship. Unrighteous people do. And these are, I think there's a lot of men who are building empires to get the worship of men. Worship of people. And you need to be very careful about that. Uh, mysticism voluntarily gives them worship. That's what Colossians 2.28 says. Voluntary worship of angels. But mysticism, that's what caused this, is their involvement in mysticism involved them, voluntarily gave them worship. And fallen angels accomplish this deception through the doctrines of mysticism, 
And the other one was contemplative prayer. These were ancient practices, practices that went way back, both into paganism and the involvement of the Kabbalah Jews, who were mystic Jews. They were practicing these same things. And uh, thereby creating false religious experiences that lead people away from who God is and thereby giving worship to the deceiver rather than God. And now these experiences define what is a higher life experience and the higher life experience takes precedence over a literal interpretation of the word of God. We was hear it like this today. Don't tell me there aren't any tongues today. I have spoken in tongues. How many of you have had somebody say that to you? Yeah, I, I've, I have many times. Don't tell me there are no tongues today. I've spoken in tongues. So what is my experience? I said, well, either you faked it or it was satanic. It was one of those two things. Because God's not doing that anymore. And especially when I, I, I said, the Bible says women shall not speak in tongues. Many times it's a woman. Now mysticism and contemplative prayer are deceptions intent upon leading people into what? If it's angel worship, it's what kind of angels? Deceptive spirits. And what are those deceptive spirits called? Demons. So they're involved in what kind of worship? Yeah, demon worship. Satan. Worship of Satan. There are a lot of demons other than Satan. We have no idea how many angels fall, fell. We know that there were one-third of the stars of heaven, the Word of God says. And quite frankly, there are probably millions, if not billions, of angels. We don't have any idea how many there are, but uh, I don't think that there's a handful of them. I think there's a really a lot of them. So there are a lot of demons. We know, of course, in the process of Christ casting out demons, he cast out a lot of demons. Some of them were hundreds at a time. So I'll go over to Matthew 4 9. Matthew 4 9, you read that for us, Justice. And he saith unto them, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship. Who's speaking? Okay, Satan's a speaker here. What does he want? He wants worship. And what's he offer? All these things. <laughs> it's amazing how when we become involved in worshiping things, otherwise we've given these things more value than our worship. God, how is it is to transfer our worship uh, from God to, uh, to things, and uh, um, of course that's a problem. Isaiah 4 verses 12 through 15, Noel, would you read that, those verses for us? Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, did that, no, I say something else? 4, okay, 14. 
For thou hast said in thy heart, I will send thee to them. I will exalt my throne and dwell just thou to God. I will sit upon the congregation in the sides of the Lord. I will send them the heights of gods. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, sides with this. They that see thee shall narrowly look up and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth tremble and has shaped it? That's good enough. Thank you, brother. We could have had to read the whole book of Isaiah. That's a good book to read. Now, when we look at this text, where does Satan's problem begin? It says in verse 13, what is it? I said what? Starts with himself. But where did he, what, what did he say? He didn't say it out loud, did he? He said in his heart. So before the action ever took place, the thinking is what corrupted him. It was how he thought that corrupted him. Now remember that because it's very much a part of mysticism. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend unto heaven, I will exalt my throne. Now this is, of course, typified in this pagan king, but he is using this pagan king to represent uh, who Lucifer is and what he did. It's in the heart where all of this begins. And of course it went forward into actions that would begin by seeking to lead, deceive Eve and lead Adam into sin. But, uh, he said, I will sit upon the mount of the congregation. What's he talking about? He wants worship. The mount of the congregation is where uh, the pagan gods, of course, would be exalted upon the high places. And he's saying, I'm going to sit in the mount of the congregation in their high places and I'll be exalted. Uh, I will be what? In verse 15 or verse uh, 14, I will be I will be like. Now he's not deceiving himself. He doesn't think he's going to be the most high. He thinks he's what? I'll be like the most high. Now, there is some involvement here in this mysticism. Why was it being faked at Jerusalem? Or not Jerusalem, at Corinth. Why were these spiritual experience being faked, which is obvious what the intent is. They're carnal, right? And the power of the Spirit was manifested through carnal people? No, through spiritual people. But they weren't spiritual people. So where were all of these gifts coming from that they were, they either were faking them or they were demonic. I don't believe they're demonic because I don't believe Christians can be possessed by demons. So if they were genuinely saved, and that's really the question, Paul does ask that question, that's, you know, uh, search yourself whether you be in the faith. Um, but he does. If, if they're genuinely Christians, then they're faking this for what purpose? Self-promotion. And what do you want self-promotion for? Worship. They're, look, they're trying to gain a spiritual high ground. 
My goodness. How wicked people can be. Now go over to Matthew 4 and look at verse 8. Now what's your, what's this little guy's name here? Abel. What? Abel. Abel. Are you Abel? <laughs> Would you read verses 8 through 10 for us, Abel, please? And Abel, I apologize for not remembering your name. Will you forgive me? Yeah. I'm old. Okay. these three temptations of Christ are all intent upon Satan getting Jesus to worship him. Right? Now notice he says, if you'll fall down and worship me. Now what does that mean? What kind of worship is this? Subservient. Right? You bow. You're bowing down before him. That's all he wants. Now Jesus is man in this context. Now he's both man and God. But in the context he's trying to get Jesus the man. To bow down before him. Which would defile him. And then he could no longer be the redeemer. Justice. How did turning rocks into bread. Get Jesus to worship sin. Or how would it? Well what had Jesus just done. For the last 40 days and 40 nights. Okay. And he was. Afterward, was well, that he was afterward hungered, right? Okay, so it was essentially, uh, did he need Satan to feed him? <laughs> so he's giving worth in that context there. So, um, so he, he's trying to get Jesus to worship him, the humanity of Jesus. Otherwise. Jesus came to restore dominion back to humanity. That is a new federal headship of Christ. So he had to be successful in resisting these temptations and not be subservient in the fall because he was Lord, both in his humanity and in his deity because he was part of a humanity that had not fallen. But this would have caused him to fall and he could not have restored that second aspect of redemption, which is the redemption of lost dominion. He could be, you know, if he sinned, he couldn't have restored dominion uh, in the, the redemption of a lost soul either, but he would have been defeated in both his purposes. In Genesis 3.15, the redemption of lost dominion and the redemption of lost souls. He couldn't do that. So any other questions on that? So the worship of or dependence on, that's key. Not just to worship, but dependence on. Any spiritual being other than God is satanic in origin. And Satan wants to get you off track by getting you to chase after some religious experience or some higher plane of knowledge. If you want a higher plane of knowledge, where do you go to get it? 
Go back to your Bible. And if you don't understand your Bible, where, where do you go? So go back to the Bible, but you can't go to prayer. Right? You ask God for something called illumination. Now, very often I'll get into a really, really difficult text. And I'll be trying to exegete it or find out what God is saying. And I'll, I'll just be, Lord, I, I don't know what this means. And uh, would you show me, please? Would you show me what this is? And uh, it's amazing how well he'll take me to one portion of scripture here, bring another part to mine here, or lead me somewhere. And, and then I go like, oh, well, that's pretty simple, really. You know, what? what's that called? It's called illumination. We know that from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and God says we have the Spirit who, who will teach us all things even the deep things of God. So why do we continue to wade through these deep waters without the aid of the Spirit when God has given us that? But he didn't say, oh, well, go, go talk to one of the angels and ask them to tell you what it was. And go to God. Now, if uh, he succeeds in deceiving us, this... Uh, he will keep you from focusing your efforts on growing in the, in the knowledge of the Lord. He'll keep having you chase down pathways of, of things that have no merit whatsoever. Uh, he will keep you from growing in a spiritual maturity from ministering to others. And here's what I've experienced over the years. Those who come to church looking for religious experiences are often at the altar. Because they're looking for a religious experience. They get excited. They weep. They make decisions. But why do I know it's a religious experience? Because what happens on Sunday never translates to anything on Monday. It's just a religious experience. And this is what happens oftentimes in revival meetings or evangelistic meetings. And I preach in those meetings I've often explained that. I said, here, if, if this is what you're here for, this is not what I'm here for. Revival takes place when you change your heart. You begin to do what you promise God's going to do. And I don't need you down at the front kneeling at the altar in order for that to happen. That's not happening there at the altar. You can do that anywhere, in your pew, driving home after church, any place. Now, sure, I'm not saying you can't come to the altar if that's what God wants you to do. But I don't spell altar, A-L-T-E-R, uh, or A-I-R, I don't spell it A-L-T-E-R, I spell it A-L, no, I did that again, A-L-T-A-R, I spell it A-L-T-E-R, altar, change your life. That's what a real altar is. You see, but why I tell you, that extra hour of sleep is not doing me good here this morning. So if he can take your focus off to, to really making some work on your own change and seeking a higher experience or higher life, something that you are more than what you already have, 
through the indwelling Holy Spirit, he's going to keep you chasing that rabbit. How many of you ever hunted rabbits? Do you hunt rabbits by chasing them, Noel? No. You hunt rabbits by sitting quietly and waiting for those stupid things to stop. Right? And then boom! Or unless you're hunting with a slingshot. My brother used to hunt rabbits with a slingshot. Now, he's going to keep you from growing if he could get you misdirected. And he's going to keep you from ministering to others because now you're focusing on what you want. And it's not a complicated thing. It's not hot, uh, the, the spiritual life is not a complicated thing. You just have to repent and confess sin to God. He'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness to fill you with the Spirit. It's that simple. And you can have that at any moment of any day that you want it. So mysticism keeps chasing you after experiences. Now, there is only one mediator between God and men, and it's not an angel. That is what 1 Timothy 2.5 says. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. Now, the concept here is both refers to Christ as a deity, the deity of the promised Jehovah incarnate human flesh, Genesis 3.15, and Jesus, the name of God, of God's in his humanity. Now, according to Colossians 2.18, any person claiming he's guided by a new revelation, by an extra biblical vision, otherwise a vision that he didn't find in the Bible, or from direct extra biblical communication from God, is what? He's a mystic. Uh, another word for this person is a medium. How many of you have Ouija boards in your room? <laughs> Good. I'm glad. <laughs> I asked a question out of fear. Somebody would raise their hand. But... Uh, um, that is essentially seeking a medium or a mystic. Now, I don't believe there are wandering spirits wandering around. There are wandering spirits who are demons. But I don't believe that when human beings die, that our spirits are out there wandering around someplace in, in the spiritual dimension. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Fallen beings who have not been redeemed are bound in the abyss. And, of course, they will be bound there until um, they will be brought before God at the great white throne. So, any form of extra-biblical, extra-biblical vision, extra-biblical communication, new revelation, you're talking to a mystic. And I talked to a man about that very thing this last week. And uh, I said, you know, that, that's mysticism, what you're talking about. But Paul says this person is intruding into those things which he had not seen. In other words, he's involving himself with spiritual beings and things with which he has no business to be involved. 
He is intruding into an area that is forbidden because he is vainly puffed up by his own carnal mind, and he wants those things. Now, I don't believe demons can read your mind or understand your heart. But I believe Christians oftentimes make a mistake of praying out loud in private places. And I don't recommend that. God doesn't need for you to verbally utter words to him. And uh, sometimes as you're uttering those words, you're giving information to beings that don't need that information. They can't read the mind. They can't read the heart. And uh, be careful about those things. Now, I'm not condemning praying out loud, but because uh, certainly that is a common practice within Christianity. And uh, but be careful about intruding into an area that's forbidden because you are puffed up or because you have this carnal mind of wanting this experience. That person really chasing after recognition, being glory for a spiritual connection that somehow gives them some kind of spiritual superiority or status among other people. And uh, even praying out loud in a congregation uh we want to make sure that we take a moment and pause and remember who we're talking to when we pray. And forget about that there's other people listening. I like that old story about the pastor asked a man to pray in the back of the auditorium. He began to pray and somebody up in the front said, I can't hear you. The guy said, I'm not talking to you. Well, we're talking to the Lord. So you just forget about everybody else that's there and talk to the Lord. That's what prayer is. Come from the heart. Now, we're going to start off here this morning and begin to look at this a little bit, just give some introduction to it. We're going to start looking at mysticism and second blessing, which is a form of mysticism. Ecstatic languages, which is a form of Mysticism, ecstatic languages is what Paul is talking about and what the King James translators understood he talking about because they interject the word unknown before tongues in 1 Corinthians 14. So they knew that these people were talking in ecstatic languages, which were either angel languages or languages that no one else could understand. And that's why they use and put that word on there. Because they understood what was going on. So the word tongues, glossolalia, is just languages. But they were speaking in ecstatic languages. Now the numerous practices within mysticism exist on numerous levels of doctrinal corruption. When someone begins down the pathway of pursuing something different, than what God promises or what God defines as normal or orthodox in the word of God. That pathology will usually and almost always lead down the pathway of mysticism to some degree. Now, we have involvements in this in all different levels of what we would call liturgical Christianity. Because liturgical Christianity is in fact a degree of mysticism. Almost all of them are. We'll look at that. 
Now, ancient and pagan mysticism entered Christianity through, otherwise paganism, the practices entered through Christianity through Roman Catholicism, and these mysteries were defined as the mystical presence of Christ in the bread and wine of the Eucharist. The root word Eucharist just means continual sacrifice. The mystery of the forgiveness of sins through the sacraments of water baptism. The mystery was, wow, you're asking, well, how, does, how can water wash away our sins? And they'll say what? Well, that's a mystery. We don't understand that. Well, how could Christ's body be in the bread and how could his blood be turned into the wine? Or the wine turned into his blood? Or the bread turned into... Well, how, how, how could that happen? Well, that's a mystery. What's that called? Mysticism. Uh, you know, confession of sins to a priest. How, how does that work? Well, that's a mystery. Well, how about paying for my own sins by penance? Not repentance now, by penance. You're paying for your own sins in penance. How does that work? Well, that's a mystery. See, these are all mysteries. Another word for that is what? Sacrament. A sacrament is a mystery. Otherwise, we don't understand how it works. The reason why you don't understand how it works is because it doesn't work. Now, even understanding the Bible was a mystery relegated to being understood only by Roman Catholic priests in the upper echelon of the Roman Catholic hierarchy the laity within Roman Catholicism were forbidden to read the scriptures, scriptures or even possess a Bible when I was a kid in school. Roman Catholics weren't allowed to have a Bible. They couldn't read it. In fact, I, you know, uh, we would have these ecumenical thing. I was a Methodist at that time. It invite a Roman Catholic to come to our youth group or something and He'd say, well, here, we read this, read the Bible together, and we're not allowed to read the Bible. We're not allowed to do it. Now, that changed over the years, but uh, originally that was, the Bible was a mystery to the laity. They weren't, in fact, most of the priesthood wasn't allowed to even have a Bible. Um, so the, the mysterious interpretations of the Bible by Roman Catholic hierarchy were to be accepted through faith, unchallenged, without any necessary explanation or understanding of what they are or what they mean. I had a friend of mine who got saved and became an evangelist, but before that he was being trained to be a Roman Catholic priest. And uh, he would, you know, they'd train him in theology, and so he'd read the Bible. And he'd ask questions. You know, every time he'd ask the question, they'd give him a toothbrush and have him go out in the hallway and scrub the floors. He, they didn't want him asking questions. Now, he's being trained. <laughs> they wanted him simply to bow and accept the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, not to ask questions, just to blindly accept it. So the first group of the Reformation of Roman Catholicism, Reformed churches are Reformed what? Reformed Roman Catholic churches. So they are reforming 
what was greatly deformed in Roman Catholicism. Didn't just throw it out and get back to the Bible. Oh, they said they did, they didn't. But the first group of the Reformation was not the Luthers, Lutherans, but were the Hussites. As the followers of the teaching of a man by the name of John Huss. And he was almost 100 years before Luther. 1370 is when he was born and died in 1458. He was burnt at the stake. But uh, Huss was uh, burned on July 6th, uh, AD 1450. The followers of John Huss's teachings were originally known as the Hussites, which later became to be known as the Moravian Church. Now you've heard me speak a lot about the Moravian Church. And these were really the first Reformed uh, people that we know. Now there were Baptists and Anabaptists, Waldensians, Albigensians, a lot of these individuals who believed like we do, long before all of these and remained a, retained a remnant all of these years. But it's hard to gather a, a, a group of, of followers in these areas when they kill you as soon as you do. So that's what they did with Huss. So the followers of John Huss's teaching were originally known as the Hussites and then became Moravians. Now Moravia today is known as the Czech Republic. Bohemia and Moravia were the two countries that became the Czech Republic. Now although the Moravians were zealous evangelists and spread their teachings throughout their nation, in fact it was as high as some people say 95 people, and 95% of the population became Arabians. They were pretty effective people. They got a Roman Catholic king and started killing them uh, in this area, in Moravia. Uh, and so uh, they, they retained their mystical views of the conference of grace to the sacraments of the Eucharist and water baptism, as do all various denominations from the Reformation. This was true of all the Reformed people. Almost all of them. Calvin, Luther, um, Zwingli, they all retained these views of sacramental mysticism. Seeing the so-called sacraments as mysteries whereby God's grace is somehow conferred to participants through ordained clergymen is consistent through all variations of Reformed congregations and denominations. This is mysticism. So these so-called mysteries were to be accepted without explanation as a means where, whereby participants were to experience Christ, his forgiveness, and his presence, of course, in the Eucharist. So the mystical sacramental view of the Moravians is consistent with most of the Reformed denominations that Reformed them. So... In the Reformed Roman Catholicism, did they reform the mystical, sacramental view of the sacraments? No. They retained that mysticism all the way through. Why is it that the variations now of mysticism that are being practiced today, contemplated prayer and other forms of mysticism, uh, which is charismatic movement, those kind of things, are so easily introduced back into those systems? Because they never abandoned the foundations of their mysticism. It's still there. So a little bit more of it is not a problem. So all Reformed denominations retaining this mystical view 
of the sacraments retain a form of mysticism in these false beliefs. And there's no such thing as mystical sacramentalism because there's no such thing as sacraments in the scriptures. They're not there. Have somebody will explain to me the mystical view or of the sacraments or explain to me what, what the sacraments, how that works. Explain that to me. And what are they going to say? Well, these aren't things you can understand. These are mysteries. Now, I'll close with this. To hold a sacramental view of the ordinances is to believe in and practice mysticism. And here's what the Moravian Church said. The Moravian Church does not try to explain the mysteries of this sacrament, of Christ's presence in the bread and wine. Believers engage in an act of covenant with Christ as Savior and with other believers in this mystery, of course. Is that true? Is it a mystery? Do we understand that there is no conference of grace in the, in the ritual water baptism? There's no washing away of sins. There's no baptism with the Spirit. None of that takes place. There's no mystery in that. Can we understand that there's no mysterious presence of Christ in the Eucharist? We understand that. Well, if there isn't any, then someone is creating a falsehood. And we'll have to pick up with that next Sunday as well. Uh, let me see. Um, Daniel, why don't you close this in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our ability to come here. That you have already had us prepare our hearts for our fruition. That we see something done here today. That we strive to be in your word. That we fight for the purity of your word. No matter what the cost. That you have to clarity wisdom from your Holy Spirit. That we have open hearts, listening ears. To then be protected for the word of the ministry. And to go forward. Proclaim the privilege of your word. Amen.